0: Thank you for listening to the Sermon Podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 1045 a.m. and 5 p.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Um, you'll see in your notes it says we're going to cover Acts 6, 8 through seven sixty. I had somebody say... And I sit down through that reading this morning and uh, we're not going to read the whole thing at this moment. But I do want you to uh, be able to walk through this and I would encourage you during the course of this next week to read it on your own. Uh, this is a valuable section of scripture. There's no scripture that is a throwaway section, but this one highlights um, the last words of a young man. Final statement of somebody who gave his life for Christ. C.S. Lewis had remarked, he said, uh, I don't know why it's any different. Uh, How can we think of life any differently when somebody loses their life uh, in their youth compared to when they lose their life when they are older? He says, both of them have lost their life. He says, uh, we just think it would be appropriate for us to get sick and tired of being here before we go. But life is precious, amen? And it is a short window of time from when we come to Christ to when we pass uh, that we have to leave a legacy. This man comes to Christ in that few short months as Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was made known uh, to the world. Comes to Christ, becomes recognized instantly as a servant, and as a young man begins evangelizing and preaching. And one of his first messages pierces the heart of the leaders and they take his life. I want you to consider for a moment as we begin to look at this passage, uh, another man who lost his life young, William Borden. Uh, We have a picture of him here. Uh, Believe it or not, he was from the 1800s. That is not Reed Saunders. (laughs) Shocking the likeness. He was saved at the age of 16. His mom had gone to a series of messages by R.A. Torrey that was at the Moody Bible Church. She came to Christ. She said, son, you've got to come and hear this man preach. And so he went to uh, Moody Bible Church. He heard R.A. Torrey preach, and he was so stirred, he ran forward and gave his life to Christ. He was from a very prominent family in Chicago, uh, extremely wealthy, Uh, Millionaires in a day when that was something big, right? Millions and millions of dollars. And as a gift for graduating early from high school, his parents gave him a chaperoned trip around the world after he'd come to Christ. So he takes off on this journey. Uh, They thought that it would encourage him to work hard and join the family business so that he would continue that family's tradition of wealth and He goes around the world, gets sick a couple of different times while he's on that trip, so he has to recover uh, for a short season in England. And while he is there, R.A. Torrey is preaching again at another church. And so he goes, and he is so stirred after the trip he's been on and the kindness that he's received from strangers uh, that he hears the call of the Lord in his own heart at that moment to foreign missions. This was not a popular story for his family. He comes back uh, home, tells them of his transformation. He begins to attend a Bible institute so profound in his studies, so able, so uh, uh, mature in the way that he approached not only the scriptures, but other people and the way that he would preach, that in a short while, uh, the American Bible Institute that was in New York Uh, was going through some changes, and he was so uh, thought of, so well thought of, that they actually, for a short season, at the age of 22, uh, gave him the headship over the entire institution. During that same season, he became a director at the Moody Bible Institute. And then he was able to bring um, the China Inland Missions to the United States and was one of the early directors of that mission organization as well and candidated with them and asked if they would send him uh, into China. While he was on that trip around the world, he had encountered a group of Muslims in the southwest portion of China and he said, nobody will ever go to them. And he says, I'm endeavoring to do that. He told his family they rejected his proposal. He went anyway. He goes over Begins to study Arabic in a foreign country in order to be able to insert himself into that culture. So he was uh, someplace in the Mediterranean and began to write sermons in the the style that would be accepted there by those that speak Arabic in that uh, Muslim community. Began to share these messages with different people. Comes back and had uh, finished his studies in Arabic and uh, was going to see his mom before he left for that Part of China. As she was traveling to see him, he contracted cerebral meningitis and died. It was a heavy blow for those that knew him and that knew of his life and his abilities. It was March of 1913, at the age of 25. Um, His mom there, wondering what to do, there's an American cemetery in that area that he was in. And Charles Erdman said uh, we should put this on his gravestone. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. His remarkable life was snuffed out before it really started. We have a story that is similar to William Borden's. Right here we are witnessing uh, what others have called hallowed ground. Stephen, the first martyr... Is just trying to serve others and share the gospel, and he is struck down. The story of the first martyr doesn't just—it uh, it wasn't just recorded for us so that we would have sympathy. It was recorded as a challenge to us to consider how it is that we're living in light of his story. Acts chapter six, verses eight through fifteen tell us the beginning of that story. Let's stand as we read. Just. Those few verses, and we'll begin. Remember they had chosen seven different uh, leaders to be the first deacons. Stephen was one of them, and it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Do you believe that actually happened? It did. You may be seated. Father, as we look at this passage, I pray that uh, you'd give us insight. Help us to be able to see what happened. Uh, These moments recorded for us are actual history. Uh, This happened just as Luke recorded it. And yet, Father, uh, it's written down for us, not just so that we'll have sympathy, um, but it is written so that we would be challenged. Help us to think about our own testimony. What would we say in the face of such danger? How would we respond? Help us to consider Stephen, and Father, help us to consider how it is that we will bring glory to your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Swindoll, in his commentary on the book of Acts, writes this about this passage. He says, reading this segment of Scripture is like standing on hallowed ground before a fallen hero's monument. As I read about the first martyr's last stand, I can see the entire tragic scene in my mind's eye. I see a man looking death in the face, yet humbly submitted to truths that he refuses to deny. I hear the shouting of enraged religious leaders against the calm reasoning of a man constrained and upheld by truth. I can feel the rumble of pent-up pride and hatred ready to roll down on a man simply for holding his own in a debate. This is not just any inquisition by any tribunal, however. History records the final words of many brave souls facing certain death for their convictions Luke includes this trial in his record of church history because this moment will mark a turning point. Perpetuated by evil men, yet foreordained by God, this tragedy established a pattern that would define church growth for centuries to come. It's an important statement. This is a pattern that would define church growth, not church persecution. Church persecution is always going to be out there in the world. Do you know that? As long as uh, God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts, those who follow Christ will be found in conflict with those who are of a secular mind. That's always going to be the case. But he actually defines it as this is going to be a pattern in church growth. In order for the truth to be lifted up, it has to be contrasted, not just in its statements, but in its actions. One person full of grace, proclaiming truth, but doing it in a kind way. Another group proclaiming hatred with anger would cut him down. These are polar opposites, not only in what they believe and in what they say, but in how they act. This is a thing that repeats itself over and over and over. So I just want us to look at three aspects here from 6, 8 through the end of chapter 7 in Stephen's life and have you consider your own. The first thing I want you to see is his ministry. Once again, Stephen was one of the seven deacons that had been called. Deacon is just a a Greek term for servant. People who were not just serving, but they were identified as servants who were always there, who were full of the Spirit, who were full of wisdom and full of kindness. They carried the gospel with them, not just uh, that they were uh, part of relief, but they were part of sharing the faith fact, the Scriptures tell us, uh, here's the indication, he was a servant, he was a deacon, but he was an evangelist that was cleverly disguised as a relief worker. These are good people. Amen? Do you know we still need that today? We need folks who will go into the highways and byways and see those that are broken and in need of help, and they need to carry with them not only relief, but the gospel. Amen? And they need to be bold about that proclamation. People will receive kindness from a stranger when they are hurting. And that kindness should always contain the truth about Christ, a God who loves them. I want you to consider that uh, titles in Scripture are used to help others identify us from a distance. That's a pastor. That's a deacon. That's a leader of some kind. When you have a title, it's so that other people can recognize you from a distance. But our nature and character are revealed by our actions up close. Who you really are is evident to those who walk with you. Stephen passed both tests. Was he a deacon and a servant identified by others? Yes. And from a distance you could say, there he is, one of the seven. But when you walked with him up close, you actually grew more fond of who he was. You saw more what it was that resonated in his soul. So this Stephen, one of the seven, an evangelist, is out sharing the gospel and he runs into people from the synagogue of the freedmen. Now it's an interesting tidbit here, but the synagogue of the freedmen, our best understanding is that this is probably a group of people who had been enslaved by Pompeii and were forced to go out uh, into the wars. So they had to participate in war on behalf of Rome. Uh, this was not their home country, but they were forced to serve him uh, as, uh, as his slaves. And then they were set free when their time was up, when the wars had been uh, concluded. And they were back in a synagogue, and they had uh, kind of um, gathered together in their own VFW. Okay, They had their own Eagles Club. Here they were in the synagogue of the freedmen. They gathered together. They would commiserate about their experiences, they would reflect upon their dedication now to Israel, and they would try to prove to others that they were more dedicated to Israel and Israel's God than they were to Rome and its gods. Their back was against the wall. So why were they attracted to Stephen? Well, remember, they were outsiders. They were slaves. They were enslaved by Romans. So here you have a man who's been identified as having a Greek name doing relief among those who were Greeks. Another group of outsiders in the area. I think they're just attracted to another outsider who is doing good things. Do you know that when you do good things in the community, it's going to attract other people? All kinds are going to want to join in with you. All kinds are going to want to be seen with you. The Society of Freedmen is there, but then they begin to hear his beliefs because Stephen never hid them. And he begins to talk about how Jesus Christ was actually the Messiah. These men started concerned, and then they began to argue with him, and then it was evident that they actually didn't have a leg to stand on. Every single objection that they would raise, Stephen had an answer for, and not just an answer for, it says he was filled with spirit and wisdom. He was answering from Scripture and telling them in ways that they had to say, this, this seems like the truth, but they didn't want to change. So they began to attack him. In fact, they stirred up people to say falsehood about him. The same way that they attacked Jesus. What becomes evident is that Stephen is not concerned about his popularity or his acceptance with any group. He was concerned about the gospel. He kept asking them to consider Christ and to give their lives to him. He was a servant dedicated to evangelism. I want you to note this, and this is important for every single one of us. Every great leader is a servant first. Uh, in our own church, if you're going to be a part of the leadership or a part of that uh, elder team, it starts with being a servant and then seen by the church as a deacon. Um, that means a servant who is always there, identified by your peers as somebody who loves the Lord and loves his people and is constantly serving them. And then out of that deacon team, out of that pool of servants, rise up those who are called to lead. You cannot be a leader if you are not a servant. Amen? If you're just there to hear yourself, if you just want to insert yourself as the most important, that is not God's way. It's not the way Stephen arrived there. Here he was, an obvious evangelist, obviously gifted and skilled in that area, but his designation in the church was deacon. I just want to serve. That was his ministry. But I want you to hear his message With his life on the line, Stephen preaches one of the greatest sermons in the New Testament. This is one of the the great statements made by an individual to another group uh, that we will ever read. And I want to uh, read through this passage. Um, I'm just going to edit it a little bit just because of of time. I want to hit some main passages. I really am asking you during the course of this next week to read it in its entirety. It'll take you uh, about four minutes, all right, to read through that entire thing. But it has great value. Let's start in 7 verse 1 it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? Remember, he's speaking to somebody who has the face of an angel. And Stephen said, Brothers, fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And he went out to the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. He gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. But he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect. That his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. By the way, God said that to Abraham. Did that actually happen? And it happened for that amount of time, 400 years. Remember, when God says specific things, he means to follow those details. But I will judge the nation that they serve. And God said, after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, that's a famous story, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. Now he uses some important phrases there. Here is Joseph, this one that is a leader that would ultimately save them. And he actually uses a phrase there, rescuing him out of all of his afflictions. That's actually a partial quote of a passage that is about Jesus. Here's this one that is a picture of Jesus. And they rejected him, but he still rescued them. Remember that. Stephen then goes on and he unpacks the story of Moses, how he was born, how he ended up in Pharaoh's household, how his people rejected him not just once but twice, and he finds himself in a foreign land. Verse 35 says, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, speaking of Jesus. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. But they thrust him aside and in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. Uh, That means false gods. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Well, you took up the tent of Molech, and the star of your god Rephan, and the images That you made to worship and I will send you into exile into Babylon. Our fathers had the tent in the, the witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. Who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? What kind of place for my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Imagine hearing this as those leaders. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the great prophets did your father not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. Do you believe that? (laughs) Scripture says, very kindly, they were seriously hacked off. What is the gist of his message? Let me walk through this very quickly with you. He looks at these men and he says, I want you to remember our history here, leaders, Throughout history, in our scriptures, the stories are written over and over and over again. You have historically rejected God's leader. Remember Joseph. Remember Moses. Remember that there's nothing bad said about Joseph ever, but he was always attacked. And yet this is the one that God was raising up to set you free. Moses was driven out from your midst. You wouldn't follow him. And yet this is the one that God was raising up to set you free. The only reason that you arrived in the land, the promised land, the only reason that you received the tabernacle, the only reason that you could understand the law was because of Moses. And you rejected him. What's he saying? You reject all these people God has sent. It's natural that this one whom you have rejected is also your leader. In fact, he's the Savior, the Messiah. Historically, you rejected God's leader, but also you rejected the land. Remember that little ploy to return to Egypt, he says in verse 39? You didn't just reject God's leader and the land, but you also rejected the law. says he's coming down from the mountain... And they say to Aaron, make gods for us who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. He's back up on the mountain receiving God's expectations. And they're like, man, we got tired of waiting. Uh, Is this guy really something or what? Well, he just did 10 plagues by the hand of God through him that set you free out of the strongest nation on the earth. You think you could wait a few days? You rejected God's leader, you rejected the land, you rejected the law, but you ultimately rejected the dwelling of the Lord. The tabernacle is with them, the presence of God is with them. And yet it says, you took up the tent of Moloch, the star of your God Rephon, the images that you also made to worship. He said that wasn't even all of the idols. So yeah, you had the presence of God with you, but you still took other false gods with you. By the way, don't we do that also? If all of the gods that were present during that day were the gods of money, sex, and power, how many things have we sacrificed to those gods and rejected God's call in our life? He said, you took up the dwelling of the Lord and then rejected it. He tells them, "Men, you are just repeating generational sin. This has happened over and over and over again. And he points out to them an obvious fact. There was a study done in the 1800s about generational influence that parents have over their children when uh, the New York State Prison Board had noticed six members of the same family were incarcerated at the same time, 1874. It's a famous study. We've quoted it uh, here before, but I think it is helpful for us to just notice these things. The board did some research on two different family lines and they researched this family line that had put six of its members into prison at that time and they began to trace it back 150 years. They went back to the very beginning and uh, they traced the family line to an ancestor in 1720, a man who was considered at that time to be lazy and godless and had a terrible reputation in the town as a troublemaker and a destroyer of other people's stuff. Uh, He was an alcoholic, Uh, he had a low moral character, and he was destructive to his neighbors. They said, to make matters worse, he married a gal that was just like him, right? I think I learned when I was uh, a kid, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. (laughs) Here they are, two of the exact same kind, brought together, and they have children. So 150 years later, there was about 1,200 of their descendants existing, And they discovered that out of those 1,200, 310 were homeless, 160 were prostitutes, 180 suffered from severe substance abuse, 150 were criminals who spent time in prison, uh, many of them for murder. The report had found that the state of New York in the current age had spent $1.5 million. Now you are talking about the 1870s, folks, $1.5 million dollars to care for this line of descendants. And not one had made a significant contribution to society. Harmful dysfunction can be traced for generations. Now, we make our own mistakes, amen? And it's not the sins of the fathers we're paying for. We pay for our own sins. But can you see how generationally we can pick up the same attitude age after age after age, and run the wrong direction. Stephen does this. He grabs on to a storyline going all the way back to Abraham, and he says, from the very beginning, we've been hard-headed, and you have rejected the truth. But I am telling you right now, this one who you rejected is the Messiah. You're following the same patterns. Why don't you just yield to him now? In fact, his main point gets cut off. I think that Peter was, in, or uh, that Stephen was intending to finish this statement that's out of Isaiah 66. He quotes verse one and half of verse two. Heaven is my house, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? That verse actually continues, and it says. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. He says, God is still willing to look at you. But he actually turns that threefold promise, he was humble, contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, and he says instead, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, always resisting the Holy Spirit. He gives them a trifecta, but he says you're the complete opposite of what God wants. Implication? You're the opposite right now, but today is the day to change. Do you know that the expectation of Scripture hasn't changed? If you would just yield to God, He'll set you free. That's His statement. What is He calling them to do? He's saying, repent. Repent. Well, He was preaching to a group of people who were a tad irritable. And when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. Have you ever had vinegar on your teeth? Can you imagine being able to hear them grind? They were angry. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's declaring, this man is not only the Savior and the one that you rejected, but he is our judge. There is no higher. There'll be no other picture. He is the one. Now remember, they're angry and they see him looking once again like an angel. They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed at him. And when they had cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now the entire trial was illegal, just like it was illegal the way that they treated Jesus. They were supposed to wait 24 hours. If you sentence a man to death, they were supposed to hear other witnesses. They were supposed to give it a season of time. Uh, Instead of rushing upon him in anger, they were supposed to let their emotions cool and see if they would still make the same decision. There was all kinds of regulations that they avoided. What did they do? In anger, they just grabbed him, threw him out of the city, and killed him. And even in that moment, this one who was full of the Spirit of God says, I see God. Lord, right now, don't hold this against them. And he dies, extending grace. Tennyson, writing about this moment, in one of his poems, he said, He heeded not reviling tones, nor sold his heart to idle moans, though cursed and scorned and bruised with stones. But looking upward, full of grace, he prayed, and from a happy place, God's glory smote him on the face. He's getting hit with stones, but he was struck by the grace of God. He still looked sweet in death. Ken Hughes, in his commentary on the book of Acts, says this, death will ultimately reveal what each one of us truly is. Stephen lived his last hours as Christ would and did. He spoke his last words as Christ would and did. He died a martyr's death as Christ would and did. And he stood tall through the matchless grace of God. If today were our final day, what would others write about us? Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. That's his final words. To a group of people gnashing their teeth in anger, his final vision on earth, his final scene that he would see are all of his countrymen rejecting him. And yet he died receiving and extending grace. He saw the Lord and he extended that to them and he held no bitterness in his heart. Pretty amazing story. William Borden who we looked at at the very beginning, passed away. And when he passed away, his mother received his Bible. And she was going through this after they had put that headstone together. After others had noticed that apart from a life in Christ, there's no reason to, we can't explain the kind of life that he lived. And in his Bible, she found three statements that were dated. One was dated after he had renounced his fortune. And said, I'm going to follow Christ and go be a missionary rather than be a wealthy man living um, in Chicago. And next to that date, he wrote, No reserve. After his father had punished his decision, he comes back and he was hoping that his son would want to join him in the family business. And when he said, no, I'm going to go instead, I've already said that I've renounced the money. And he says, well, I want to give you a position in the company. He says, I don't want a position in the company. I want to follow Jesus. And his dad said, then you will never be a part of this company ever. You will never be a partner. You'll never have any position here, no matter what happens in the field. And under no reserve, a dated statement said, no retreat. And then he contracts meningitis and the doctors around him say, we're not sure you're going to make it. And in a moment coming out of that fever, uh, he was still lucid and he's writing in his Bible for comfort. And dated just that week that he died was the statement, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. What is written as a banner over your life? 25 years old, chasing after the Lord only a few years to put his name on display, and he does something that we talk about today. Amen? Amen. Transformed life. What will they say about yours? This morning, I'd have you consider two things. And the first is this Stephen was preaching to a bunch of hard hearts. It is possible that you are here today and you don't know Christ. You might even be here today because you're curious. What do those folks believe? I came to Oli's service this last week, and I want to know more about this Jesus, but you've been resisting him for a long time. It is possible that you are here and you've been hanging out with people. You've been curious about their activities, but you've been stiff-arming God. This is what the scriptures say. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't reject. Today's the day. So if you want to give your life to Christ, this is what Scripture says. Christ died for you, was buried, and rose again on the third day. That's all recorded in the Scriptures. He was seen by over 500. This one who died, was buried, and rose again did that for you. He did that to set you free from sin. And what does Scripture say you need to do? It just says believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you say, I know that he did that for me, you're saved today. The reason we have you come forward or pray with us is we want you to immediately find fellowship with another brother or sister in Christ. We want you to find somebody and say, I made that decision. And then they rejoice with you. That prayer doesn't save you. It's a reflection of two people saying, thank you, Lord, for what you've already done. But we would love to pray with you today. If you have not given your life to Christ, we'd like to walk with you through what that means. But a second thing we need to reflect on is this. Most of God's great evangelists have no credentials. That means that they're not in some noticed position. They don't have letters behind their names. They don't have a position sometimes even in a church. They're just somebody that is sold out to Jesus, sharing the gospel with all of their friends. That's you and I. That is our calling. Every single believer is called to share their faith. We're to share our faith because it fills our hearts, not because we have a position. That's what Scripture calls. Today, you can have the same kind of witness that Stephen had. As you are going about ministering, taking care of people, interacting with the folks that are in your circle, you can bless them with not only material things in your presence, you can bless them with the truth of the gospel. You can tell them about Jesus. You have that opportunity right now. The moment that you walk out of here, you can be an evangelist for him. Will you heed that call? Let's pray. Father, help us to see uh, in this story uh, both our need to stand for Christ and our need to examine our own lives. What is it gonna, that is going to be said about us when we pass? What will others say was the sum total of what we did? Father, help us to chase strong after you. Help us to live lives that others will see and say uh, that it was filled with the Spirit. It had evidence of Christ all over it. Not them living for themselves, but them living for you. Give us that testimony, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.